Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Do me a quick favor. If you like what you hear at Planet Microcap, please take two seconds and give us five stars on Spotify or Apple. This helps with the search engine so that more folks can also discover and engage with all things microcap stocks. I'd like to start off by wishing you all a very happy Thanksgiving. I truly hope you have a wonderful holiday with your families, and I'm thankful for all your support here at Planet Microcap. Next up, the Planet Microcap Showcase Vegas, happening April 30 through May 2nd, 2024, at the Paris Hotel and Casino. Save the date. We are working our tails off behind the scenes to put together the best program we can. The website is now live. And if you'd like to register to participate, please visit planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. Now, my guest on the show today is Cromwell Colson, president and CEO of OTC Markets Group. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is OTCM on the OTCQX. As part of my trip to New York City, I had the opportunity to meet with Cromwell at OTC Markets downtown offices, where we chatted for about 75 minutes. Our last interview on the Planet Microcap podcast was in December 2019, and it's safe to say a lot has happened in the last four years. We covered a lot of topics, including as many of your questions as possible. Micro and small cap capital markets, uplistings, delistings, cross-listings, stock promotion, dark stocks, and much more. We conclude by discussing the capital markets trends we're likely to see in 2024 and the trends Cromwell would like to see in 2024. You do not want to miss this conversation. Thank you again for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my interview with Cromwell Colson. Cromwell, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Thanks for coming into the office, Bobby. I love coming here every single time. I mean, look, look, at, look at this background view of the Statue of Liberty is right over there. We got Jersey City. So I do appreciate you hosting us. And thank you again for uh, taking the time to do an interview with me. It's been four years. Yes. Uh, Quite a lot has changed. <laughs> a, I mean, a little bit. I mean, this is the world's been kind of going topsy-turvy. So let, let's kind of start there. You know, I mean, there's so many highlights and, you know, lowlights, you know, just kind of covering the gamut. So, I mean, in your opinion, since we were last here in December, 2019, you know, what, what would you say are some of the company's highlights and, and also likewise, some of the lowlights or challenges that you've been experiencing? So we'll start with, start with the highlights and then we'll do. Well, you know, the highlights are we're all still here <laughs> and a lot of people seem to be doing well. Their kids have grown, a, grown a bit older. Uh, we made it through an incredibly scary time. And we changed a lot. The ability to go remote, 
And for, for us, our markets was keeping them open at first. And stock markets had to stay open. And people will say, oh, you have to close the market. This terrible event is taking place. That is exactly the wrong approach because the market is also going to be a signal that confidence starts to return. And you saw that when COVID first came through, stocks were getting sold off. Nobody knew what was going to happen. And then people thought about it and they got rational. And they realized, hey, we will survive. It will be different. We will get through it. And the volumes were incredible. So for us, keeping our platforms up with all of our broker-dealer partners was a huge accomplishment. And the team that across our broker-dealer business, our technology team, they, they all worked unbelievable amounts and partnering with all the other broker-dealers. And every night after these huge volumes gone through the systems, all the technology and the client support and the business operations people within the broker-dealer industry were like NASCAR pit crews, <laughs> just rebuilding everything that had burnt out, replacing it. F1 now, okay? So, yeah. you know, that's, the new, that's the new hot thing. It's not yeah. NASCAR. We're pretty American. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Proudly American, <laughs> even if I'm a New Yorker, which is a pretty international city. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, so that was a highlight of it was scary at first, but it was a highlight, the accomplishment that we did and dealing with the market wide halts had never been done before. And the industry handled it. And we all felt we were in the same boat. Now, what else happened? Well, we went to remote work and we had a lot of work to do. At the time, the OTC markets was transforming because the SEC had updated Rule 15C211, which modernized both the disclosure requirements for OTC markets and the regulatory role that we play. So we started out where we came from was a useless pink phone book. And working with the broker-dealer community and regulators, we built an electronic market and we built market standards, and we built disclosure systems for issuers to be able to provide disclosure, digitalize their information, and demonstrate their compliance with securities laws. The SEC went to update Rule 15C211 for the digital age and also recognized the role that OTC Markets Group was playing. And we went from having two pillars of operating a regulated market, which is one, providing an electronic venue for broker-dealers to meet and trade, and two, distributing the market data so everybody else in the world can see where the trading that's taking place. To they added on the role that we would be the monitor that companies are providing ongoing current information and that we could onboard new companies into the market, introduce them into the market if there was adequate current information publicly available. And so that was an exciting regulatory role to come out of the past four years with.
Absolutely. So, you know, another question that I have to ask, and I, I guess we're, I'm skipping a little bit, but it's one of those things that I feel like a lot of people always talk about when it comes to OTC markets and the platform and the fact that, you know, you, you do work closely with the SEC on reporting regulatory requirements, everything. I mean, you, you know, in one of your recent pieces, you talked about um, how you're model, modernizing the, tra- the platform where you're providing more transparency so that folks can come in and see recent financings and what kind of financings they are. You know, the SEC must absolutely love that. So when will they turn OTC into a a recognized exchange at this point? Like you're doing everything you possibly can to get there, but what's the hurdle? Well, the role that we play is extremely important. Right. And there is a real difference, though, between a national securities exchange, a stock exchange. Right. Traditionally, there was the New York Stock Exchange, there was the American Stock Exchange, Mm -hmm. and there were regional stock exchanges. The only two stock exchanges that were recognized for having the standards to only allow blue chip stocks on their exchanges was the New York Stock Exchange and the American Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. And regulators because of the high standards that the New York Stock Exchange had and the American Stock Exchange had, gave blue chip exemptions, such as the ability of brokers to solicit orders and an exemption from state blue sky laws, margin ability, because these were established profitable companies. And then NASDAQ arrived, and NASDAQ wasn't a stock exchange it was able to provide a home for these innovative new companies that weren't yet profitable. Some were more speculative, some were smaller. And NASDAQ was highly successful. NASDAQ became a national securities exchange, a blue chip stock exchange. Mm -hmm. So that opened up a role for something that is not the Coke or Pepsi of the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. That opened up a role for OTC Markets Group to provide a series of market standards that as companies become more established, have better governance, grow in size, don't become, are no longer penny stocks, can rise up that ladder and receive qualifications. So I believe that what we've been doing and where we work with the regulators is on a, on a strong path forward. Mm-hmm. We have a very different model than the exchanges. The exchange model is you're buying a brand. And once you join this club, everything is, is perfect. It's paid advertising. Is, ours is data-driven. We want to be able to have the right amount of information on an investor's screen or in a machine Mm -hmm. so that the market can value the security in the right manner and those market forces decide the merits of an investment. Very good. And you know what, I think that was really crucial to give a little bit of background on, you know, the evolution of 
you know, be recognized exchange that, you know, where OTC markets fits in into this whole ecosystem. But I think that also ties into my next topic that, and we'll come back to the challenges a little bit. I know I asked you the, the two-parter for the first question, how, how rude of me. Um, but I think that ties into the next topic because uh, look, uplistings have been probably one of the main things talked about amongst capital markets. You know, we've had a number of uplisting panels and keynotes at our events. They've been at all the, you know, pretty much every event, there's probably something having to do with uplisting and or cross-listing, you know, either cross-listing onto the OTC or uplisting onto NASDAQ or NYSE. So forgive me, I'm going to read this one thing. So in, in that last interview, and you kind of mentioned it even just today, that traditionally OTC was seen kind of as that, that first step to being a public company. You know, it's a, it's an, m less expensive to be on OTC. I mean, you still got to do all the, you know, all the other stuff, you know, having to do with accounting, legal, all that. But at least from a listing fee perspective, it's the the most inexpensive compared to NASDAQ and NYSE and doing a direct listing there. So, you know, as, as companies grow and mature, you know, some of them then, uh, let's say they start off here in the QB, QX, and then they start to uplist onto NASDAQ or NYSE as they grow mature, you know, now they're ready for it, you know, some cases not, you know, what, what's your perspective right now on uplistings? Because I know there's been a lot of them and we've seen a lot of data and we'll get into one of our other topics on that. But as we exist right now, like, do you still feel the same way about uplisting from OTC to NASDAQ and NYSE than maybe it was four years ago when we last chatted? So first it's good to put some numbers out there of what our market is today. Mm -hmm. And it's very different than what many simple perspectives are. If you look at the data, today there's over 2,600 securities of companies with over a billion dollar market cap traded on the OTC market. They traded $238 billion in dollar volume through the end of Q3. That represented 88% of our overall dollar volume. So you dive deeper, and 77% of our symbols are international company ADRs mm -hmm. and foreign ordinary shares. Those types of securities represent over 85% of the dollar volume. And those numbers really contradict a common narrative that the OTC markets is only for smaller companies or speculative penny stocks. I, that was part of my question. I didn't say that aspect of it, but you're right. Yeah, like you guys have Heineken on there. You know, um, I mean, that's just the first one off the top of my head, but yeah, I, I apologize. Yeah, great quality investments, and we've provided a way in a cost-effective and non-complex manner for an international company to provide into the U.S. financial markets their disclosure in a normalized manner mm -hmm. and demonstrate their compliance with U.S. securities laws. It's a, it's a great value proposition. It lets companies be national champions, raise their capital in their local markets and through institutions mm -hmm. while still having that global connectivity. Mm -hmm. It's a new paradigm. So we have some sophisticated international companies that truly understand what we what it offers, and they love the product. And there's other ones that are oblivious. And that's our job to educate on how they take care of their US investors. Then there's other companies such as community banks, 
we offer a great public market for community banks. They're high-quality companies. Management is usually quite fantastic, very connected with their shareholders, connected with their communities. And we've taken complexity and cost out of being public for those companies. We also have the traditional home for companies that are restructuring or in bankruptcy in our pink market. However, we have OTCQX where you have to meet financial standards. You cannot be in bankruptcy. You have to be current in your financial reporting. We immediately remove companies that go late in financial reporting. There's a clock. There's no variability. And then we've got OTCQB, which is a venture market. It's disclosure-driven. And there is background checks of people. There's certain minimums for amount of float. And we're looking where can we put more information in the market to be so the market price reflects the, the valuation and the supply and demand. The exchange model is more complex and designed for the largest U.S. public companies. Smaller companies spend a lot to be listed on an exchange. Some of them do it because they believe they get the value. And the value of being listed on an exchange is if you are a large enough company to be a material part of a major index. The other value is if you're a Wixie, which is a well-known uh, issuer, and you can do ATM offerings directly into the market. Once you get outside of those two real value quotients, being on an exchange does not offer as much value. So why do companies do it? And there's a whole community of investment advisors, investment bankers, financiers who tell companies you have to graduate early. And they're doing it because there's a lot of fees for that community. And what we've seen is that smaller public companies that list on the exchanges too early and don't have access to at-the-market offerings where you can sell directly into the market, they have to sell private placements. And some of these are the payday lenders. They buy shares at a discount, and often they will sell short ahead of getting those shares, so they're making even a bigger margin. And the financing's reprice based on the market price, so the lower the stock goes, the more shares that get issued, and investors, who are the existing investors, become diluted. So there was an SEC case against an investment advisor who was buying private placements from a NASDAQ company, and they were not following regulations on short selling, and the SEC case spells it out. And we did a recent piece on the issuer. And the issuer in that year had done two reverse splits. An investor who had 1,000 shares at the beginning of the year 
would have had less than one share at the end of that year. So functionally, they went through bankruptcy. And reverse splits are fine if a company is going through bankruptcy, out of court, handing ownership to its debtors. However, it should not be treated as a blue chip investable security. And what we've identified is there's these companies that are on the exchanges, and it's predominantly NASDAQ because NASDAQ wins in this market segment. So it's part of just how the listing standards get gamed. That are continually doing reverse splits and then toxic financings. And the companies don't come back. So, so it, you know, it, I'm really glad we went here because, you know, I, I, I read the article um, and I really appreciated what you guys had to say. I also wanted to feed off just to get some pushback from that too, just so that we can have a, a little conversation on it too is, you know, because this was mostly, let's be real, this has mostly been affecting the healthcare sector, right? Mostly the biotechs where they're being told most of the time, whether it's, you know, I, listen, I, I try and find out whether it's true or not, but they're all, for the most part, I hear it is true that there are some institutions that have mandates of like, okay, you know, we want to give you the... 20 to 30 million you need for your phase 2A, right? Your phase 2B, but you need to be on NASDAQ and you have to do all the things that are necessary to get there so that you're on that, so that you satisfy that institutional investment burden, you know? So when a biotech hears that, that might be on the QX, they're like, all right, well, I guess I, I guess I got to do it, you know? Or they think like, well, maybe I could do that a little bit earlier than when I need that money in order to like, all right, my ducks are in a row. Now we can do it because we all know sometimes that process can take a while. So what do you say to some of the vendors that might push back in a little bit and say, well, you know, this is where they need to go in order for, especially as it pertains to biotech, to raise that 15, 20, 30 million in order to do that phase 1A and kind of using that as an example, but it can be applied to even some, you know, pre-rev tech and all that stuff. So love to hear your thoughts there. There's a lot in that. Yeah, I know. And we have time, right? We've got time. (laughs) So let's first address the institution point that institutions have in their mandate. They won't invest Mm -hmm. in this type of company. If you're a $100 million market cap biotech company or any company on an exchange, 85, 90, 80% of your public shareholder base is going to be individual investors. Who else will be there? There will be some, some investment funds, private partnerships, family offices. What will their strategies be? Will they be deep value? Well, then you're trading an attractive price. Will they be value and growth? Then you're growing, and you're growing in a thoughtful manner. Will they be debt for equity lenders? Those aren't institutions. Those are intermediaries, and they are selling very expensive capital. It is easier for them to buy private placement shares from a company 
and sneak them into the market if a security is on NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. That is changing. Because we're a data-driven market operator, we get a lot of the same data points about listed securities as OTC securities. We also feed broker-dealer compliance processes. When broker-dealers start to look at where their real risk is of, of securities violations coming through their systems, the listed world in smaller public companies that are doing private financing is a higher risk profile today just because that's that community keeps doing keeps the game and if you look at the numbers we did on IPOs of companies going to exchanges if you're a management team and you want to be a fiduciary for your shareholders you have today the numbers and the odds look terrible if you go to one of those financiers who says you need to list on an exchange so I can buy your shares at a discount, I can sell them in the market, and after I've sold them in the market, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reprice the conversion ratio and get more shares for every dollar of debt that I've done with you. And that's a problem, we need to fix that. Capital formation for smaller US companies doesn't work. We're lucky we have a great international business. We have a great business for companies that don't need to raise capital. Smaller public companies, it's hard to raise capital. The easiest capital comes from these unregulated intermediaries who are toxic to your existing shareholders. So let's say, because I think there's some ongoing litigation having to do with all of that right now. And let's say it, it loses. Let's say it's, it's done. But let's say these intermediaries are now gone, you know, then what, you know, like what, what then do you say, okay, now that that's out of here, you know, the bankers are still probably going to come back to you and be like, okay, yeah, that's gone. But we still have all these family offices and institutions that are still giving us a hard time that they wanted on NASDAQ, you know, now what? Well, it depends. Warren Buffett has a line. We're not running the company for the shareholders who want to sell. And if these supposed institutional investors were, will only invest in your company if there's a giant door for them to run out and you will give them more shares at a discount to what the public market is trading at, it's not an investor. It's an intermediary. interesting I, 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 so it's better for a company to take to sell shares in a fixed price at a private placement to an investor who does fundamental analysis who believes believes in your company who holds management to not only being a fiduciary for shareholders but also being a sharp commercial operator mm -hmm. and being a steward of the business they're building that is a high bar. And companies get desperate for capital. We know it exists out there. Especially right now. Yes. Like now is now. Right now in, in these markets, you know, 
It was, it was interesting. I, I remember consciously have, having a, a many conversations in 2021 towards the end of 2021 or even before where I was like, I, I, companies like if they're going to need capital, now is the best time to be raising money. Yes. The best time. And companies raised money and they were smart about it mm-hmm. and they have gas in the tank. Yep. That's, you know, that's the Im- important part is you need to be financed. You need to get to a level where you're profitable because you can go forever. Mm-hmm. Is if you're not profitable, you need a story that investors who want to stay in your company remain as investors, buy into at a valuation that's appropriate. And you know, smart management teams who are in it for the long game, who have skin in the game of their own equity that they paid for or they build up, they don't want their security to be overpriced. They want it to be adequately priced. They want a valuation that reflects the business and they want to build the underlying fundamentals of the company that drives that per share valuation over time. And, th- and that's the, you know, that's the market we're building for. So, so then I, I think maybe one, one other pushback that I've, uh, that I've heard in talking with, you know, in various, you know, vendors that work with companies on OTC is they hear what you're saying. They actually, I feel like they, they want to agree with everything that you're saying, but then they say, but one of the things that companies keep pushing back on, or like maybe they're hearing from bankers when they're considering what they want to do is like, all right, well, liquidity issues, right? And that's not to say all OTC, there is, I mean, you just read some stats, what, five, 10 minutes ago? Like there, there is liquidity, there is volume, but you even said it, it was 85% for the billion and above, right? Or 80, it was 80 plus percent, something like that. You know, so I think one, one of the things that keeps, that keeps coming up is the idea of DTC and Blue Sky, right? So is OTC planning on, do you guys have an offering to issuers for so that they can become DTC eligible as well as Blue Sky? Or is that still in the works? DTC eligibility is, is not as hard as it was for a, for a moment. You just have to work through it. Mm-hmm. Is we're not hearing problems of DTC trying to restrict access okay. because DTC is a utility facility for, for the industry. Mm-hmm. They have to provide fair access. Right. That, that part is, and we're a utility. And, you know, broker gets a call from investor and they say, I have 100 shares of XYZ stock, that broker has an agency obligation to get them the best price. And to trade securities, you need to be a regulated broker dealer. Mm -hmm. So that's where part of the OTC market came from. We created another part where companies could take control and demonstrate compliance, provide ongoing disclosure, show that they do care about their shareholders. And we found that lots of public companies, both U.S., international, wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. So Blue Sky, 40 jurisdictions recognize our OTCQX market. A few less recognize OTCQB because some states have disclosure-based blue sky laws. A few states have merit-based 
and merit-based requires governance standards or more assets. And OTCQX was built around the higher end of the state standards. There are 14 jurisdictions left for us to work on. We will grind those down over time, hopefully. NASDAQ had 27 states for Blue Sky when Intel went public. So we're making progress. This is really important for the investable type securities. Heineken, there's going to be an investment advisor, a broker, who wants to recommend Heineken to be in their investor's portfolio. For a smaller biotech company, the investors are going to have to come in self-directed. Their blue sky matters less. Sometimes people point and say, oh, Heineken's going to trade a lot because it's Heineken. Everybody knows what it is. It's an international company. It's an ADR. That's easy. However, we've had a product that's traded a lot, and it's traded at premiums, it's traded at discounts, GBTC, which was an innovative way for investors to own Bitcoin. There was incredible amounts of liquidity in GBTC. It was one of the top holdings of millennial accounts in online brokerages. And it showed if a security has demand from investors, they will find it. So you bring up a, a really good point. Because at the end of the day, this is always something that's going to be argued about with OTC forever. I, like it's, it, It'll never go away. And there's two sides of it. There's going to be the core DIY microcap investor that, you know, Bass Ackwards found their, you know, best investment idea that happens to be on, you know, uh, because it has no, let's say, because it's very thinly traded, no liquidity, and they see that it has great fundamentals, and they just, you know, they want to own it because the institutions just haven't figured it out yet, or it's too small for them. Like, that's part of the fun of the game in microcap investing and OTC provides a great platform for you to find stuff like that, you know? And then at the same, at the other side is you're going to have those companies that recognize like, wait, we need more liquidity in order for us to do the raises and, and do all that stuff. So I feel like that's just going to be a, a pro not a, necessarily a problem, but that's always going to be the dichotomy that's going to come up all the time when it comes to OTC markets, right? And let's be real at the end of the day. Like that's well, it's the dichotomy of Wall Street. So there's another group of investors, which is where I came from, mm -hmm. is value investors. Yep. My history is I worked for a market maker who traded NASDAQ and OTC stocks with a deep value conviction. We had institutional clients who were some of the, the greatest value investors. And many of those invested when I went to buy with a group of investors, National Quotation Bureau, to fix the market structure. They all wanted pricing to become transparent. Those investors look at the financials. They're going through looking at the fundamental valuations. They're taking a look at the track records of the management teams, trying to find people of intelligence and good character. And those securities trade fine. Lots of value investors own community banks. It's a traditional area 
where the financial information needs to be analyzed, compared, the management teams you can meet and understand and see the long-term plans. So we've always been building our market to work for a company that is putting information out for value investors. Now, there's lots of different investors. Not, not every investor reads disclosure. You don't need that. The market will get it right. Our job as a market operator is to keep the information going out into the market. And eventually, the market gets its price. It's a bit different, and there are different players. There are speculators. There are people who want to trade volatility. My son is in the investment club. And it is the farthest thing from an investment club because they have this market watch software where they're all just day trading. <laughs> and he comes home and he shows that he's done 40 trades in a day. And he was doing pretty well. His $100,000 got up to $500,000. Nice. Yesterday, he wasn't as happy. He got he, a savant on, on our hands. He was back down at 250000 <laughs> Okay. So, but they're trading all these habits. Yeah. And we had, you know, every time we've had investors come into the market, there's been a boom, and then there's been a bit of a bust and a contraction, but the investors have learned. They've learned how to become better investors. Yeah. Which part of their portfolio should be more speculative? Which should be long-term core holdings? Which one should be income-based? And this cycle we're coming out of, if we have these investors and they're smarter investors over time, and they look back and look at fundamental analysis, they, they look at disclosure, they look at places where they're getting diluted, we're going to have more communities of capital interested in high-quality small companies versus small companies that are just in the business of raising capital. Very good. All right, so I know your time is valuable, so I want to get to a couple other topics here today. But we kind of hit on this next topic, and that has to do with market conditions. You know, just... The last two years have been a bloodbath for small microcap stocks. So I keep harping on that because I know that you guys have the large cap ADRs, but a lot of people associate still OTC markets with small microcaps. So that's why I keep saying that, just making sure it's clear. Anyways, so, so you, there are, I mean, it's either 800 or 900 companies on the exchanges that trade under a dollar. Yeah. Is there's 700 last time I list I looked on the list of out of compliance with their with their standards. Mm-hmm. Where is most of the penny stock volume taking place? We also track promotion volume. Mm-hmm. What companies are being promoted? It adds to our market integrity. Mm-hmm. We have a process to flag it on our websites if it's a company on, on one of our markets. We flag it to broker-dealers if it's a listed company because, and because we don't have a relationship with the listed companies. Mm-hmm. However, if it's an OTC company, we have them make a statement. Mm-hmm. 
and this is really important, they make a statement about whether the promotional materials are misleading. If they have in indirectly or directly paid for the promotion, mm -hmm. are they raising capital? Are they issuing shares? Do they have a blackout period? So we get more disclosure in the market for this very small amount of companies, because this is not 5% of securities. This is less. And by asking for the extra disclosure from this small group, we're putting less of a burden on all the other companies. And we're also putting better information into the market for investors. It has changed the dynamic. Part of our promotion program is we get feedback from the community that's, that are looking at individual stocks. Who is it? It's traders and fundamental investors. And the feedback we get is that by flagging promotion risk, by enhancing disclosure in those securities, we're improving that part of our market, except the, the, the securities that are listed on exchanges. No one is watching that. And the worst parts are now happening on exchanges. And if we look at the dollar volume, again, in promoted securities, 90 plus percent of the dollar volume of securities that we've flagged with promotion is exchange listed. Now, this is a really important point because I think that what is the process that OTC has in order to determine whether a, a stock is being promoted? Because, I mean, look, there's a lot of these media communications firms out there. You know, some take stock and, you know, there's a lot, right? So do you do you also go to the company and ask them like hey what are have you been what have you been doing all that kind of stuff like love to hear some of your criteria because I think some folks especially on the investor side would want to know that they want to hear that criteria as well as maybe I mean we're not going to name firms or anything like we're not going to do that but just at least on the criteria side. So so we have a public promotion policy okay. and making that process more transparent over time is always a goal for us. It is imperfect of what information we share and what we, do, what, what we can and what we can't because often we are asking questions of the company and expecting that they will put the disclosure out to investors. Sometimes there are companies. Like what? What do you mean? We didn't, we didn't pay anybody. We didn't pay any, anybody. <laughs> uh, we know nothing about it. And they're putting out those press releases. And we know something else. So there's a silence process going along, and a smart investor will figure those points out, and there's a promotion flag up there. Mm -hmm. And our goal has always been, how do you turn investor relations and stock promotion and marketing into a reputable p role? And that's putting transparency in and standards, shining a light on some dirty corners. 
exposing some people who may not have had the best hygiene. It's painful because every time we flag a stock, it looks like promotion is only a problem of OTC markets. We know otherwise. Investors know otherwise. Brokers know otherwise. The public should know. Now, look, I, I figured I'd ask, you know, at the end of the day, we interview companies, right? You know, I'm interviewing you right now, CEO of a publicly traded company. And that, that that's, it's both noble that you guys are trying to do, doing that. And at the same time, it's, it almost then, it, people always then will look to that and be like, ah, see, OTC is Wolf of Wall Street stuff all over again. And, and if they only knew that this isn't just happening on OTC. Well, you let's know, address the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> Stratton Oakmont. Do we, do we have to? All 27, <laughs> all 27 IPOs were listed on the NASDAQ, NASDAQ stock market. Yeah. Their game was to call someone up and say, I've got this hot NASDAQ IPO, buy it. So we get the blame for something that was happening on NASDAQ, the Wolf of Wall Street. It makes me cringe. When they came in for the film, I pointed out that fact to them because they wanted a copy of the pink sheets as a prop. And we said, well, number one, we love trees. So we stopped printing that pink phone book every day. Two, we love the environment, so we stopped having it delivered by trucks every day. And three, we believe that it's much more important for information to be shared widely so investors can see exactly what the market is, which we did by taking the market electronic. So that's the Wolf of Wall Street side. The other part, there's standards of promotion. You're interviewing a public company. We know who you are. You've got your picture, and you're using your real name. How you're paid by a company. Are you posting it? Is it hidden in, in type? There are many promoters that are completely anonymous, or they're anonymous about who's paying them, or they're being paid indirectly to shield areas. That's not right. I agree. That, that is just not acceptable. So we want promotion to become an honest profession. And you do that with transparency. Couldn't agree with that more. We, I mean, we, we go above and beyond. I mean, I mean you know our disclosure requirements i think yes. i don't think we would be talking today if you didn't uh, <laughs> know our disclosure requirements and we like i said we go above and beyond to make sure that it's absolutely clear with every interview that we do small public companies need to have their story told yep okay. they need to be out there they need to be talking especially if they're raising capital you know otc markets we've been cash flow positive for a long time you know we run our business from a conservative manner is we, we want to be great stewards for, for the markets we run. We need to be good commercial operators. And we're fiduciaries for our shareholders. Because we see ourselves as running a public company, we want to be a positive example.
it's interesting if you look at where returns come from public companies. About 4% of public companies are the ones that deliver the excess returns. Mm -hmm. So finding that 4% if you're a fundamental investor is, is hard. The other part is there's lots of companies that may be going through different phases. WeWork has filed for bankruptcy, delisted from the exchanges, which is interesting because some bankrupt companies they've tried to keep on for much longer. Ten years ago, the exchanges would immediately delist the day a company filed for bankruptcy is because it wasn't a blue chip anymore. Some bankrupt issuers, equity shareholders get value. The way bankruptcy works, you don't know with certainty until the bankruptcy plan has been confirmed. There have been some bankruptcies where the first plan coming from the senior creditors gives no value to the equity shareholders, and time goes by, and either the plan changes or the value of the entity changes, and equity shareholders get something. But it's, it's like a free option. Most bankruptcies, the shareholders are not going to get anything, and when the bankruptcy plan is confirmed, the shares are canceled. FINRA takes away the symbol, you're gone. However, we do not know until the bankruptcy plan is confirmed by the judge. So that security should trade so investors who own it can sell it, investors who believe maybe there will be value. And famous investors, Bill Ackman, has made in some bankrupt equities. He doesn't buy a portfolio of bankrupt equities. He doesn't buy an index of bankrupt equities. He does deep fundamental analysis, and he passes on lots of them. But when he finds one, general growth properties was one of his greatest trades. The rest of the market missed it. That is not what happens in nine out of 10 bankruptcies. You know, another, that actually goes into another question I wanted to ask you about having to do with the expert market. And let's double check on time. We still, we still good? Yep. Yep. Okay. I can be w with you all night. Yeah, this is fun. I, like yeah. <laughs> so, expert market. Yes. We had, that was 2021 when that all came down. You know, now that is in existence. You know, you have the choice, you can get current go on pinks yeah yes. yeah get current go on the pinks or you're now on this expert market so how what what how would you say that that is i guess for lack of a better term performed and the response that you've heard from investors there's there's a lot of different responses so from the regulator standpoint is probably the first uh, the first side the expert market 
was built as the stick to incentivize managements and directors to provide ongoing disclosure. It is a pretty fair deal. If you want a public quote in your stock, you should be providing disclosure. Public prices, public disclosure. That has worked. It has incentivized companies, long-time companies, who had long lists of excuses why they were not providing ongoing disclosure on a consistent basis to the market. What has not worked, for a mix of reasons, and I believe the staff at the SEC would agree with this, because we had a vision that the expert market would become much like the institutional private placement market, where it's a market for professionals, where we could show prices to broker-dealers, quibs, accredited investors, and there would be price transparency, there would be best execution. However, that hasn't happened for numerous reasons. A lot of firms have built up compliance processes that restrict the ability of investors to buy these securities. There hasn't been that much quality of securities in the expert market. Trading other securities, which we see a real potential for, and we did a blog post on it, and you can link to it, is restricted securities with other types of restrictions. The clearing is harder. So I believe over the long term, the expert market will find its role. If you read the Buffett book, Snowball, there's a great line about he would get sent by his brokers paper copies of the old National Quotation Bureau books, and he would go through them, and he'd look for the least liquid securities and try to find information and dig around. And my view was that this market will become, for sophisticated investors, a place to find these distressed or more dangerous or dark or delinquent securities. However, we're not there yet. Very good. All right. So I got two more questions for you before I let you go. So next topic is new listings. Um, I'm going to quote here. Colleague and f uh, a colleague and a friend of mine uh, made a comment on uh, LinkedIn to uh, Jason Paltrow's Pouchowitz's uh, recent appearance on Bloomberg, where he said, and I quote here, we need higher quality businesses going public, uh, for example, profitable. 87% of stocks globally that went up 1,000% or more over the last 10 years came out of the microcap ecosystem. 82% were profitable, end quote. I mean, in your opinion, why aren't there more quality companies um, not going public earlier in their life cycle. And and let's get beyond just, you know, the price of going public, right? Because I think, you know, whether it was now or back in the early 90s, like, let's just adjust for inflation and say, all right, 
price, you know, some of those prices have gone up. But aside from just the cost of initially going public and then staying public, why aren't more companies and also taking out the excuse of VCs and all that, you know, and staying public longer and all that stuff, taking out those two things, why, why else, why aren't some of these companies going public earlier in their life cycles? I didn't mean to answer both sides for you, but I look at it from three ways. There's cost, there's complexity, and there's capital. Okay. So we know the cost. The cost of being public is the your listing fee is one of the lowest priced items. It's all the advisors, it's all the other work, and it's the complexity, the time and complexity for the management team. Much of that complexity adds value. They make a company more sustainable. You get the governance of, of directors. Your community can buy shares. You have transparency of your business model. You're forced every quarter to put information out. There's not a single professional sports team that doesn't play in a well-lighted stadium with quarters with a scoreboard, with referees, with lines, and with fans both cheering and jeering. Public companies are the professionals, the professionals of capitalism. So we should want to get more companies public, capitalism, democracy, go hand in hand with tra transparent companies that people can own a share of. Capital is the big problem. We have a regulatory system that makes it hard for investors to lose money. And markets are about winners and losers a highly successful market. We've studied venture markets around the world. You don't want to buy an index fund of venture companies. You want to figure out the winners. And you want to stay on top of them because it changes. So how do we have a public market for earlier stage companies and how do we make it so capital is more accessible if you're public? And whether you're OTC or exchange listed, we still have these companies, the smaller public companies are having to go to the private markets for capital. So how can we expect them to be raising capital to go public if they still have to raise capital privately? We have to fix that. Public companies should be able to sell shares into the public markets directly as easily as they can buy back shares. And that's the big fix, because if we can do that, we will make being public an incredible opportunity for companies with ideas. Think the SEC is going to listen to this? I mean, you know, we can we can send it to them, but you probably know some people there better than we do. So we'll make sure that they, uh, you know, see that part for the suggestion. Well, my view is this SEC regime 
probably won't. Which is a bummer because the chair's background was an investment banker. So the one part of market structure that he should understand is capital raising. And when he looks at an enforcement case where a public company in the biotech sector, their stock's trading at 90 cents, and they sell shares at supposedly a 20% discount. However, in reality, the person they're selling shares to sells the stock down to 60 cents first. So their VWAP of what they sold at before they converted is not 60 cents, it's higher. They get those shares, then they go sell it down to 50 cents. They get those shares. The total cost of the capital, you add in an 8% fee for best efforts of the investment bank, is that cost of capital is ludicrous. So I got an out-of-the-box question for you when it comes to thinking about OTC and why, especially for new listings, why not, why not actively, like truly actively, like every blog post from here on out, say, you know what, we want OTC markets to be the trading platform for quality. That's it. We just, we want quality. You know, I know you got a business to run, but you also get a lot from the cross-listing side. So like that's 70, 70, 77% of the business that you pretty much said. But when it comes to new listings, especially in the US, like I think a lot of it, of at least I think some of my audience would get behind that of like, oh, this is this is where the quality is going, at least earlier on in their life cycles. Like, so, so the quality... Not that there isn't already on there. I, I don't mean to make it like that, but, you know, but I think you see well, what I'm well, saying. Our, our commercial interests are definitely hurt by our qualitative interests mm -hmm. and the amount of companies that would like to qualify for OTCQB or OTCQX and the amount that do, mm -hmm. the amount of companies that we remove because they no longer qualify. Mm -hmm. It's a different model than the exchanges. Mm -hmm. There are lots of tricks to hang out on an exchange forever after you don't qualify. We believe that if you have a data-driven market, you're late in your reporting, you have this much time to file. And if not, you go pick. So we have been very pushing on qualitative because the international market is a fantastic market for us. There's great international companies. We offer a low-cost way to have that connection as a, as a national champion but be a global company, a global corporate citizen. So I would disagree that we haven't pushed that qualitative side, and we actually get companies that we've rejected that we see pop up on exchanges. Now, that doesn't show up because people have a viewpoint. We still have risky securities, and that's a part where I will fight. I believe risky securities should be able to be traded as long as the risk is disclosed and understood. It's a, it's a really important point. Yeah. 
markets are not a ride at a kiddie entertainment park where it's a little scary, but it all works out. Everybody has a fun time. Markets are where buyers and sellers meet. Risk is priced. We want our markets to be able to price risk. And some risk can't go away. There's lots of risks out, of, out in the world. You're a biotech company. Will your product work? Will the next trial work? Will a competitor appear? Markets should be able to price that the opportunities and the risk. However, because we're accepting of risk, and risk is, is often misunderstood, there's risk of something going wrong. There's risk of change. Investor risk is a risk of a permanent capital loss. Often they look at fraud risk. Fraud risk is probably the lowest risk that investors actually suffer from. The biggest risk is valuation risk. They buy a security when everybody else loves the security. Very few investors are buying WeWork shares today. There are a lot of investors who bought WeWork shares when everything was smelling of roses. Whether the problem is that WeWork had too much debt, too expensive leases, management didn't execute, the business environment changed, all of those are risks there, and the market has priced it. The second risk, which is in the, in the middle, or the third risk, which I'd put though in the middle, for smaller public companies, is dilution risk. If you're an investor in a company that needs to raise capital, and dilution risk is not much of a risk in a company that's creating net capital, unless management's giving away too much shares and options in dilution. But dilution risk can be an incredibly huge risk. And we've worked hard to have companies put out more information when they're doing offerings. More information than is required by the SEC, more information than is required by exchanges. We've also built direct feeds from all the transfer agents so that we can provide more timely and trusted information about shares outstanding, shares authorized, so the market can see where the share flows are coming from. In that way, we believe that we're going to be able to make our markets more robust at pricing risk over time. Very good. All right. I've taken up a lot of your time tonight, and I so very much appreciate it. So I got one final question for you here today. You know, we're recording this, what's today, November 9th? 2023? Yeah. So pretty much we're at the end of, uh, of 2023 here. Don't tell my team. They've got a lot of things to accomplish <laughs> by the end of the year. I know. I'm watching. They're all, they're all running back and forth. They see you in here. I see it. Um, but, you know, like I said, we're, at, we're about at the end of 2023. You know, what, what would you say are some capital markets trends we're likely to see in 2024? And then what are some trends you, you'd like to see in 2024? 
we don't make forward-looking statements. <laughs> I think that's a dangerous place for public companies to get into. So Really? <laughs> yes. And so much better to look at what are the things we would like to see improved. We're optimists. We've kept building the markets become more transparent, more electronic, better regulated, and more connected. We've done an okay job. We still have a lot of work to do. We wake up in the morning knowing we've got a lot of work to do, and we go home. So my shopping list would really be about the regulatory improvements, the things we don't control. Blue sky, not for every company, but for companies that can meet the standards of the various states that we can have a normalized framework for companies that are investable is, and then for states that are disclosure driven, QB, is another rule we'd like to see updated is margin for profitable companies. Years ago, there was something called the OTC margin list. Not every company on NASDAQ was margin eligible. You could list on NASDAQ. However, you needed to have a certain amount of market makers, you needed to have a history of profitability, and you needed a certain amount of float, which is a thoughtful side. We would like to see margin eligibility for the company, the established companies that deserve it in the OTC market is because if you can borrow against your property, it's worth more. Margin eligibility has downside. Because if a share is marginable, it goes in margin accounts, and then it can be borrowed for short selling. So more speculative companies, less profitable companies, may not want their shares as easily borrowed. Short data. One of the most misleading pieces of information in the market is daily short volumes. Any professional tra trader who works for a broker-dealer or any regulator who understands trade reporting knows that the percentage of shares sold short in the daily short volumes does not represent real short selling. If your mother owns a share of Apple and decides that she wants to sell it, you didn't tell me? No, I'm or a hundred shares of Apple, she sends it through Schwab. Schwab sends it to a market maker. The market maker automatically limit order displays that. And they'll do it for an OTC security. It's one of the regulations. But someone comes in and buys it, a competitor comes in and buys it. The market maker sells 100 shares. However, they sell the shares on a proprietary basis, short, and they immediately, in a microsecond, buy back your share. That looks like a short sale. It wasn't a short sale. There are all these other moments like that. It is terrible data, and there are people who mislead investors by saying, look at all this short volume, there's all these short sellers out there. We've written pieces about what you really want to look at, which is the short interest is, so we'd love to see that. 
And access to capital is, is a very big, is we, we want to lower the cost of access to capital and make being public less painful. Being public should be a goal of lots more American companies. It should be the goal of every entrepreneur. It shouldn't be painful. And finally, our ATS was approved to trade digital asset securities by FINRA. The regulatory framework and the clearing framework is not there yet. We would like to see that broker-dealers can lawfully trade digital asset securities in a, tran in, in a transparent and regulated manner. I think those are all great goals, and I, I just have to say an amen that it should be every entrepreneur's goal to be public. It is a goal, as you said, and I just hope more folks just really take that in. So when we were a private company, we had very sophisticated investors, and they would come in every year and say, Cromwell, your team's done great work. When are you selling the company? <laughs> because if you're an investor in a private company, you're an activist. You don't have another choice. So we distributed our shares to our shareholders, and we became a public company. We provided public disclosure. Those same investors, I thought, might want to sell. No, they would come in and they'd say, Cromwell, the management team has done a great job this year. And I'd say, well, do you want to sell? And I said, no. I now have shares that's in a brokerage account. They're valued. You pay a dividend. If I ever need to sell, I can sell some. And that same conversation took place with our employees. All of our employees had stock options. They had, they had stock. They went from having a piece of paper, which might have been worth something or not, to a value they could see every day, a continuous market. And a company that had the infrastructure and governance to be sustainable. It's really important. Going public creates a better governance, more transparency, and market feedback. Amen to that. It's a great place to end it. Cromwell, where can our audience go and find more information about OTC Markets Group? OTCMarkets.com. Very good. Well, Cromwell, thank you so much for joining me today. Really Thanks, do appreciate buddy. it. Thank you for hosting us, having us, and uh, let's hopefully do this again in uh, you know less than four years. Yeah. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker-dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities at any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.